Have you learned any Hungarian since you've been here? No, well, uh, not really. <laughs> okay, no, no, no problem. I'm just going to yeah, yeah. give you these few words. So, okay. yo, yo. I think it's funny because in English, yo, yo, yo. <laughs> it means good in Hungarian. So, whatever okay. you hear, yo, this, yo, that, it means good something. Like okay. They wish you something good. Okay. So, that's, 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 yeah. that's positive. All right. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, it can alter to reggae, means morning. Napot means day. But you don't have to remember it. Yo it's, starts a good a Right. Good yeah, wish. yo. Okay. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome back to the Path Puddles Products Podcast. This is the second part of our conversation with Pontus Wernestal our guest from Sweden, who is an expert both in AI and in service design. How cool. We went for a lovely walk in the forests of the Buddha Hills back in September, wandered around chatting about both service design, the past and the future of AI, both the threats and the opportunities, a little bit of Hungary and Sweden. Come and join us for the second part of our walk. You know, you mentioned the dangers of AI. Yeah. And I read your article, AI will not take any jobs. Right, right. Yeah, that's clickbait headline, by the way. But actually, But, <laughs> you were arguing about the language. The yeah. importance of choosing your words well. Indeed. Yes. And yeah. I loved how you reposed the question. Because if you don't mind spoiling yeah. the article here. No, no, sure. You re re rephrased it by saying, humans can drastically change the job landscape by implementing AI. Yeah, and it's so not as catchy, right? <laughs> no, but why don't we talk about that yeah. instead? So the thing with the notion of AI will take our jobs, Yeah. that is, so, that is wrong on so many levels because of the choice of words and what it means. Yeah. First of all, AI doesn't have any agency yet to take anyone's yeah. jobs. So that yeah. will always be a human decision if they choose to automate that workflow or not. So it puts the responsibility on the humans instead, yes. right? Uh, I think it's lazy to say that, oh, AI took it. <laughs> no, yeah, I have nothing to do you with as it. a manager decided yes. to replace someone with AI. That's, that's the responsibility thing. And then the other thing is the word will. It has a sense of inevitability to it. No, yes. it's if we decide to, right? Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. not will. The other thing is that it rephrases kind of like if you just switch AI to, let's say, immigrants... It's oh, the same kind of like immigrants will take our jobs kind of thing. Yes. And it's a really bad sentiment to have. So I think that that particular phrasing is very misleading. It allows people to dodge responsibility when you phrase it like that. So I think that's important. I love that part that you said about replacing it with the word immigrants, as in <laughs> yeah. it completely eliminates the possibility of collaboration or mm. complementing each other instead of... Yeah. And it, and it is also our jobs as if that was a static, uh, naturally given pool of jobs. I mean, It's we create, there. yeah, yes. we create jobs all the time and we lose jobs all the time as well. Yes. Uh, so it's like, no, there's not a set number of jobs that are up for grabs for either AI or AIs or humans. That's just a weird model. I'm sorry. In the meantime, the dogs are drinking uh, in a very funny um, fashion because I forgot to bring them a plate. So they are almost drinking from my, what do you call it? 
And then water bottle. <laughs> yeah, water bottle. I'm losing my English here. <laughs> well, it's a hot day, so I can't blame them for wanting water. <laughs> so I think there is opportunity to expand um, the number of meaningful activities we do if we design AI right and have a human and human activity-oriented way of looking at it. Instead of say that, okay, so right now humans are doing this workflow. Let's replace that with a machine because it's more efficient. I think that's a very limited way of looking at the possibilities. It's always better to augment humans so they can thrive and do better things. And it's not only because it's a you know nice thing to say yes. about humans. Yes. It's about value creation. The value creation will be higher if you allow humans to expand on their potential because that's how value is created. Do you see any companies who, who, who follow this principle in applying mm. AI already? Most companies actually talk in this way. They, mm -hmm. Their messaging and their branding is, um, we should augment humans. And uh, nobody wants to say, yeah, we're out to eliminate human jobs. Nobody says <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. It's the same thing, like almost like greenwashing sometimes. You know, people yes. keep talking about... <laughs> this thing but then they do this thing and i i um i don't have any data but it seems like companies talk more about the human augmentation but they do more of automation exactly. <laughs> and i you know that's a danger so so what do you think we can do to avoid a situation that happened to the ux um peeps with the cambridge analytica you know we all thought we we're doing the good thing mm. and then boom yeah we realized that in the background we were not doing the good thing exactly and To me, that's education and knowledge. That's why I wrote the book uh, on AI for designers and not for engineers <laughs> because they have enough literature already. So I, I think it's, it, it is a matter of... If, like Cambridge Analytica, if more people would have known and taken the time to understand what goes on, maybe they could have intervened before. Right. Yes, but it also comes to another topic that I have been going around quite a bit, which is the agency of designers in this, yeah. and and especially in on the levels of strategy. Yeah. And how there was a good, we had a good going for a while, and design maturity became a thing, and it became um, something that companies were measured by or studied to be measured by, and there were these different levels defined right what we call design maturity and we knew that initially companies uh, very few companies were on the top yeah. where they would include design a design approach to strategic decision making and unfortunately this number despite of also what you mentioned that big consulting firms were purchasing or acquiring design firms in the 2010s mm -hmm. somehow this number still hasn't significantly changed on the top and currently with all the big layoffs especially in the US, but I feel like it's sort of around the industry in design layoffs, which I am referring to. I don't see that right. going in the good direction. Right. So uh, yeah, we are back to sort of where we, I don't want to say where we started at, but it's not going hmm. yeah. towards the growth. Yeah, I haven't done the like the total analysis of that. And I, I'm I don't know how much we can attribute to like the general recession or how much we can attribute to something else, but you're right. Definitely there was, I feel there was a lot more talk about getting designers to the table, right? Yes. That phrase. And now 
But I also sense that, yeah, okay, some designers got a seat at the table. What did they do at that table? Um, can we look at ourselves also as a community to see, did we take, the, did we shoulder the responsibility enough? Yeah, so I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I think you're, you're definitely right. There was more talk about design maturity scales and like strategies for being design driven and so on. It's, it's falling a little bit behind. But on the other hand, I, I talked to a number of leaders in a, a workshop we had. And for some big companies, even the design leaders said, we're not sure that level five is the right fit for us. Uh, we probably make a better um, contribution if we are at level four, because that means that we still own design. If it's right. level five, design gets spread right. out all over the mm -hmm. organization. And that means that we as the core design community lose agency. And I thought that was, yeah, okay. Uh, th that's one way to look at it. <laughs> but then, okay, I, I think that's super interesting. Yeah. Uh, but then you say that the way forward is education, and this is why you wrote the book. So my question is then, could it also be that the same education can somehow creep into management, business mm. decision-making, oh, yeah. not just designers? Because if we only enable designers who don't have agency on the right levels, For then sure. we are still back to ground zero. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. And I, yeah, and uh, we actually have some uh, programs at Hampton University aimed at professionals. So we We, we have that as an extra offering to people that have worked for maybe five, ten years and they want to get sped up, um, you know, get up to speed to with both design, AI and uh, business innovation and management. So we have three legs there. Yeah. And um, definitely the design track is also aimed towards leaders, not only designers. So because I think you're right, the agency is there, uh, is not only in the design departments. Because let's face it, you don't have enough leverage if you are doing wireframes uh, day out no. and day in, right? You, you, you will not change the company uh, by doing that. Yeah, I remember in, initially when I was doing that and I tried to advocate for, hey, why don't we do some research? And everyone was laughing. Yeah, yeah. And I remember I said, look, we have these, you know, the data, the data analyst guys sitting right next door. Shall we go over and grab some information? <laughs> why would we do that? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, but this was a long time ago. And, and I've had the opposite, actually. I was in a, a usability verification uh, team early in my career. And I discovered, like, it, there, there was this placement of a button that was not great, right? And so I, I discovered that. I, I did the report. And then I made a, um, a redesign suggestion. And they were like, yeah, that's cute, but we don't have time to redesign anything. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because you're in the usability analysis part. We've already done the thing. You're just supposed to verify that the usability is good. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, but, <laughs> but you have verified it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> how, how is that going to help? So, you know, agency can, can be lacking in both ways. <laughs> so... I would still like to hear a little bit about how did you come about to be what you are? Because you are a very strange mix of different worlds. Yeah. Um, would, you, would you mind to tell me a little yeah, bit yeah. about your, the history of your education? And okay. Yeah, sure. I um, started studying math. Not because I liked math or because I was good at it, but because I was actually not good at it. I, I don't know. It, it sounds really weird. No, it doesn't. To no. me? <laughs> okay. No, I will no. say why not. No, All please right. continue. Yeah, no. Yeah, so I, I had a fairly fairly easy time in high school it, it's I, i didn't have to do 
a lot. I, of course, I studied, but math was my problem. So that always bugged me. So I was like, maybe I should go to university to get some math. And of course, it was really hard. Um, so then, you know, you're young and you're uh, very like, you're not nuanced. So I was like, no, screw this. I'm going to do art. So I did <laughs> art history. <laughs> um, and that mix, like first math and then art. And then I was like, I had moved to this university city. I was a little bit lost. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with a little math and a little art? Right. But then I heard, did you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I heard about this program called cognitive science. And it said something about uh, designing. Uh, and they, I think the, the marketing materials were wise enough to use you can design websites. And this was like 97. Ding, ding, ding. So <laughs> and I was like, websites, oh, cool. And what also struck my interest was that they said they had courses in artificial intelligence. And of course, me being, you know, fascinated by science fiction, I thought, wow, for real? I can do <laughs> AI? That's cool. So I started cognitive science and took a master in that and uh, with an interaction design and computational linguistics profile. And that's my master thesis. Cognitive science yeah. and linguistics and... In, interaction design. So cognitive yeah. science is a multidisciplinary uh, subject. So yes. it draws from philosophy, psychology, computer science and linguistics and anthropology and, uh, and so on. But we... Uh, sorry, sorry, stop right there. Yeah. You guys, that's why you have to go to the university. Because you get all these different viewpoints on a wider topic. Back to you. That's right. <laughs> that's correct. And so... I was fascinated by AI. Um, I became fascinated by AI, but also, of course, I got a little calibrated. Like, okay, so the AI they talk about is pretty far from what I saw in the science fiction movies. <laughs> yeah, at the time, right? yeah. At the time, yeah. And then I was really sick and tired of academia after my master. So I, I decided not to, uh, you know, ever go back to academia. <laughs> And then that was the first recession, yeah, in 2002. So I applied for like, you know, as a newly graduate, I applied for like 50 jobs and no one was hiring in the dot-com uh, oh, collapse, right? Also, they wouldn't know what to do with you maybe no. at the time. And then uh, my, my professor read my master thesis, granted it some kind of award and said, you should actually do a PhD on this. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have a job, so why not? <laughs> because that's uh, you get hired uh, as a doctoral student in Sweden. Yeah, yeah. So I I'd had a secure job for uh, four years. <laughs> so there, there go there went your intention yeah. of leaving academia. Exactly. <laughs> and and the funny thing is that after my PhD, I defended that in 2007. I was again a little bit sick and tired of academia. I so said I vowed to not go back again. But and then it was a slightly better time. So I actually got a job. Um, and so I had this job in an agency and it re went really well. And I did a lot of UX design. And I, we even were one of the first advertising agencies in, in Gothenburg to have a dedicated UX department. Um, otherwise, <clears throat> you could have like a UX designer here and there. But we were actually uh, mandating a department. And we Fantastic. had... Yeah, it was really nice. It was a really great time. I learned a lot. Um, and then... We decided to move. We got our kids and we decided to move from the city and we moved to this smaller town that I live now. And just in order for me to find something to do, I just called up the university and said, are you interested in having like guest lecturers? I can do that part time. I have experience in this and this and this. And they were like, 
hesitant, like, yeah, that's not really how we operate, but send in your CV. And, and, and then they call back, it's like, hey, you have a PhD. Why didn't you tell us that? You, you can be a researcher here. <laughs> so, so, yeah. and, and, and so I got back the third time to academia. <laughs> you just can't shake it. I, I can't shake it. Yeah. But I enjoy it. It's, it's a lot of fun now. And I've been there for 10 years, part time. And um, it's great. And now, because you mentioned part-time, so how does that play out? I'm, I'm doing roughly 80-20 split now, and it's uh, I've done 60-40, 40-60, and uh, right now it's 80-20. So I'm 80% at the university, so that's my main job now. Um, but, you know, that can shift. And it plays out uh, fairly well. Having this kind of dual career takes a little toll on my free time, because... I no I need to be responsible for you know managing the logistics behind it and so on. Both sides, so to speak, are really supportive. I mean, Egghead really loves that I have this uh, academic or scientific approach to things, and the university really likes that I have practical applications yes. of what we research and teach. So it's a I think it's a really good uh, good mix. But yeah, I I wonder why aren't there more people with that setup. Because indeed, like university allows you to yeah. have a safe space for formulating criticism yeah. and have an overview, right? Yeah. And then being yeah. in the market allows you to be in touch with the actual moving yeah. of things. Maybe uh, people haven't tried it. <laughs> I mean, it's not like there was this option saying, hey, do you <laughs> want to do this? I mean, you have to create it yourself. I feel like you're also one of those people who don't necessarily just look at the box and see if you fit in, but rather right. draw something that looks like something else and then yeah. ask others, hey, do you want to get in? And then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, that's that's just the way it it has been for me. And it's kind of like the language thing. If you've done this for like 20 years and you've managed to go through family and, uh, you know, raising kids and all that, it doesn't feel like it like it's hard to do that but in the beginning yeah sure it was a little insecure and maybe i think i feel like it's the same for everyone yeah i love this spot yeah it's so peaceful and yeah amazing i like to just come out here sometimes too to think and you can't really tell that we're close to the biggest city you can't right <laughs> it's... and you are yeah i mean technically this is still budapest where you oh are okay now. yeah yeah you know, the, the worst thing about Hungary is really the uncertainty about it. Like it. Yeah. But then there are still good aspects about it, like having these huge nature areas in yeah. the capital. Unfortunately, I've never been to Sweden, but I lived in Poland and I know what a value this is to have all these. Yeah, for sure. I think you would love uh, Sweden. Uh, I've only been here like not even a week, but it's, there are some things that I didn't you know, know about Hungary, realize about Hungary, but I think there are some connections to really? culturally and, you know, the just like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly that. <laughs> but, but of course, it's, it's also the fact that I've had the opportunity to hang out with people like you and, and uh, the university faculty and so on. Of course, they are more alike all over the world, of course, but yeah. I... and But also what you're telling me now and this view could be a Swedish view. Seem, I, can't, I, I have to spend more time here, but I, I think there are some similarities. Um, 
beyond what I thought before. I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a real image of what Hungary would be no. like. This is the first time you're here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have any expectations or or prejudice that you? Yeah, prejudice for sure. But of course, I'm I'm trying to be aware of those. So I was just trying to not. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to realize the only thing we read um, about you guys is the political yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, I know. And I, I mean, Hungary is. I think a very weird place. Um, I never thought I would live my life here because I felt against a lot of things that represent mm. everyday life here. But then I also realized that there, you know, there's the other side of the coin, which then I was missing from other places. Yeah. And I, I give you, I give you one example, which I like about Hungary. So when I was living in Holland, I. I realized I'm living in a society which has been a democracy for hundreds of years. And there's a system that works and people rely on it. This is the good part. Great. You know, you don't have to worry about what's going to be the regulation tomorrow. However, I feel like it also made people a little bit lazy. For sure. Yeah. And so when a, a problem arises that the system half falls between the, the, the lines of the system, like maybe, yeah. you know, There is a responsibility until here, and then there's a millimeter, and then there's, you know, the other line. If it falls right there, nobody knows what to do. Exactly. And it's like, it's not mine. I don't do anything with it. Right. It's not mine. I don't do anything with it. And here in Hungary, I feel like the level of creativity in the yeah. common folk is mm. so much higher. Yeah. Only for the reason that we never know what tomorrow will bring. So I, I totally agree. I think that's a very... A good observation and Sweden would be exactly the same as Holland in that regard we are really comfortable with our well at least we used to <laughs> be comfortable in our ways of you know the system takes care of everything um, yes. which is uh, dangerous because it doesn't really you don't have the sense of urgency that democracy is worth protecting because you take it for granted right there you go yes yeah. I would never have thought of that but yes and you do yeah You know, the old saying that you can vote your way out of democracy, but you can't vote it back in. I love that. I never heard that, but it's so yeah. true. Yeah. But yeah, back to the good part is, yeah, there's this creativity that lives on. Right, right. And yeah. you always keep an eye out for things. And it has a bad side. Like, you know, when you... One thing I love <laughs> being in you know, like the right. other part of Europe mm-hmm. is I know that if there's a line and if I stand in line, I know I will get there. Right. You know, in the order of people standing in front <laughs> yeah. of me in Hungary, you never know. Because somebody will be smarter and they think of something, how they get there, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but but I can also see the other side. Like, if it was a country where I knew that even if I stand 15 in line, I will still get a thing, yeah. I will be at peace. But yeah. here you never know. Right. So, of course, you... Keep you on your toes. Yes, bit, exactly, right? exactly. I think, yeah, a good mix would be... <laughs> yeah. Would be good. Yeah. You shouldn't feel worried about your everyday, yes. but you shouldn't take it for granted as much as perhaps uh, we do in Sweden. Exactly. Yeah. So when you talk about how That's AI the... depends on human decision making, yeah, exactly. and you combine it with this reality, and not just in Hungary, I mean, look at America, you know, the, yeah. the, the shrine of freedom and democracy. Right. And right. What? No. No. <laughs> okay, so AI means many different things, right? But the power of using these huge models based on data um, to predict things. That's a really big power. 
prediction has been like even since the first legends of being able to see into the future like in ancient uh, histories mythologies and so on predicting the future has always been like our holy grail right yes it's all like a fortune teller yeah exactly that myth is now in in some sense possible because you can predict that's why chatgpt is amazing right because it predicts the next word and we accept that because that word yeah that's exactly what i wanted to write right so prediction actually one going back to when you asked me to define ai i sometimes talk about prediction machines that's what it is it's prediction machines that we're building and that's a term i i borrow from uh, agraval uh and his colleagues they wrote a book called prediction machines um and i think that technology can be used to really draconian purposes it, it's a really powerful technology in in the wrong hands exactly um, so it's the dream of any dictator <laughs> exactly <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what are we going to do to Is well we have to, to we just like we have uh, democratic elections and basic constitutional rights uh, to protect us from that we should have the same kind of legislation around the use of these technologies they should be as protected <sighs> So are we going back to legislation and the tiny <laughs> workshop? We're going this way. Okay. Uh, Stella. Yes, it is the moment, baby. So I looked through the history of AI and all the different stages and, and the people who did one another type of research. And there was one um, person from the University of uh, Southern California, I think. Mm -hmm. I will have to look up who the guy was. Because it was, of course, a guy. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> anyway, he was arguing that this is this paper is from, I think, ninety three, mm -hmm. and he was also talking about what's the future of AI and different aspects of it. And he talks about legislation mm -hmm. too. And then he says, yes, a lot of people argue that legislation needs to uh, play a part, just like they did, for example, with the. Um, invention of nuclear yeah, you know, exactly. power and then of course now we have all these power plants but we don't have necessarily nukes he argues that a lot of people say that yes we need need legislation and now you see the whole airport oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> that we need uh, legislation to to frame it just like they did with oops careful uh, nuclear power Yeah. But at the end of the day, business will always beat legislation because if those countries who do uh, regulation around it will fall behind the race and therefore it will be everyone's interest to not over-regulate it. Otherwise, they will be um, in a disadvantaged position, you know, in the race for who is going to, I yeah. don't know, just achieve the most with applying this technology. Maybe it was not by uh, intentionally, but now you're, you're switching between regulation and over-regulation. Of course, okay. that... By the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. There is a paraglider. Oh, nice. <laughs> right? Yeah, yes. I mean, over-regulation. Yeah, that's probably not good. <laughs> it, it's in the, like in the definition, like over-regulation. But regulation and legislation, um, I don't agree that businesses always beat legislation. I mean, we have a ban on tobacco products. We have a ban on advertising tobacco products in Sweden, for example. Yes, me, me too. So, yeah, so so of course legislation no more, works. No more Marlboro guys on horses. Right, and you know, the, so yeah, legislation works, no question. But it might be inefficient sometimes. It may lag. It may 
be you you might realize after 30 years that the legislation needs to change yeah sure <laughs> yes. but i mean <laughs> that's, that's true yeah but uh, but, but to say that it doesn't work that, uh, or or that businesses always beat it that, that, i don't believe that I mean, otherwise, I mean, what, what you're, what he or you <laughs> are advocating for I'm, then? I'm, I'm not advocating. No, no, I'm just, but, but, I'm just repeating what he right. said in the paper. But that line of argument would, if you, at least what I'm hearing is that okay, so we should have a an absolute non-regulated free market on everything. <laughs> well, then slavery is up for grabs too, right? <laughs> I'm sure there will be, <laughs> let's say, players on the market who wouldn't be against that either. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but I, but I also think. Legislation is not only the law, the letter of the law. It's almost. It's also about the the image or branding of something, okay. right? Yeah, because the you, yeah the thistles. Look at that, and the and the big bees. Oh wow! It's just so beautiful. Sorry, we're cool. We are walking by some cacti-looking things with thistles. beautiful, beautiful right? flowers. Yeah, on them. Yeah, and, and bumblebees of, and yes. Yeah, um, to to your earlier point on we have legislation on nu nukes. Um, yes. The 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 problem is that AI is well in one sense it's just as powerful, but maybe not in in like it's not concentrated into one. Um, bomb or something, but it can affect society in fundamental ways. Absolutely. And yet, it's not regulated. And also, it's a lot easier to build an AI system than it is to build a nuclear bomb. Because the accessibility of APIs and data and models is a lot uh, cheaper than uranium, for example. <laughs> so, yes. so, AI is... Uh, I definitely think there should be a lot of legislation surrounding uh, the use of these technologies. I mean, I'm actually, again, unfortunately, I'm 100% on your side, unfortunately, <laughs> as in that for the argument. So I feel like every time I, for instance, look at uh, a job description, yeah. it always calls for cross-functional um, cross team experience, you know, something yeah. like that. And we keep talking about how the lack of a mix of knowledge in certain functions can lead to, forgive my expression, but disastrous outcomes. Like if tech bros don't worry about people, if designers don't care about technology mm, yeah. or ethical aspects and so on. And yeah. I feel that it also is true for lawyers and legal representatives, as in, if you looked at the congressional hearing, I yeah. think it was the congressional hearing of Cambridge Analytica, Yes, I remember thinking, oh my God, these guys have no clue what they're right. asking about. Right. Yeah. So again, how do they make legislation, That's, even if they yeah. have advisors or consult consultants on their side, if they don't know what they need to Yeah, sure. That, that, that's, yeah, that's the next step. <clears throat> I mean... Okay, so if we decide that we want legislation in order to protect society and individuals, then the next step will be, okay, so how do we make that legislation good? Yes. <laughs> that, that's a, yeah, and I agree. Uh, it, was, it was kind of uh, almost a torture to watch the, the silliness of the questions for some of the yes. hearings there. Um, yes. But that's the reality we live in. Um, and I, I think when, when people talk about reg regulating AI, and by the way, 
it doesn't have to be on the like the governmental national level it can be like okay so what is the university's policy of using generative ai in education for a local university right yes but then you fall into the category of what this person was saying in his paper i really need to look up his name when you said okay if you regulate yourself against other market players then you really risk also falling behind of a certain sure result sure but but um yeah uh, but my point was slightly different my point here no that's fine we can return to that my point is that even in those situations like a university that teaches ai they might still lack the you know the sense making um and i and i know a lot of universities are now focusing on how do we prevent academic uh, misconduct using ChatGPT for students. Oh, that's right, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but ChatGPT is just one tool out of many. You need the legislation to be on a higher level. Yeah, right? I understand. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So so the the level of what I'm saying is that it's not only lawyers that have this like <clears throat> short-sightedness or yes. or blinders on. It's even people in the field that don't understand the the scope of it. And I think we're all uh you know no one can know everything so everyone will be biased or ignorant in in certain aspects can i just advocate for put a service designer in there yeah. <laughs> that solves everything <laughs> but okay i also wanted to grab the opportunity to highlight that when i for example say put a service designer there i don't mean to say that the service designer will know i don't think a service designer is supposed to know right i think the service designer is there to facilitate the knowledge coming together right in a place that can be then transparent for all participants and they can you know draw better conclusions yeah, out sure. of that knowledge base yeah because i also think that you know if someone comes to sorry for a bit of deviation but if someone comes from a design field to become a service designer more often than not they may have some kind of an artistic trait yeah and I have met service designers who had that attitude of I know it. Yeah, yeah. And in my opinion, you're not supposed to know it. Exactly. It's not your job to know it. Yeah. Just that. That that's that, that's true and and uh, there are many flavors of service designers. Some of them come from design schools and have that basic design education, right? Yeah. But there are also service designers coming from more of a branding marketing management uh, field, right? Oh yeah. And they might have other and by the way Vargo and Lush's original paper on service dominant logic they are from a economic marketing background and not a design background right okay so um, th they can bring other things to the table that perhaps you didn't learn in design school so i think what what's your opinion on that do, do you need a design background to be a service designer or not so i'm going to be stoned answering this question <laughs> okay I personally would prefer someone to do have some kind of a design background or some kind of a complementary design education. Yes. Yeah. I think as a, I think of service design as something that's built on top of something. Yeah. But it cannot be just a skill set as we touched upon earlier. Right. So for instance, I think you can come from cognitive science. psychology or science yeah. and then if you add service design to it, but not as a boot camp. Right. But as a master's, yeah. that's fine. Then you probably can navigate that space. But I do think that you need some kind of a design education to 
be able to fulfill that role that, in my opinion, service design can thrive at. Yeah. What yeah. do you think? Okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah. It would be easy if everyone had it. I'm just uh, saying that, well, maybe there are things from other fields that could make a contribution, especially uh, if you're talking about policy design and maybe not the output is always designing a new deliverable or service, but it can actually redesign the workflow or maybe uh, put new policies in place. Um, maybe you can get that from other um, backgrounds. I'm not sure. But, uh, I but mean, I, I'm not yeah. saying that they, they wouldn't bring something new to the table or value to the table. I'm just thinking that, okay, I think we also need to talk about what type of service design yeah, exactly. there are. Yeah. And the type of job that I'm describing, I work as a free agent right. currently. I have been doing that for a long time now. Yeah. And so I feel like I always come there as a blank sheet. So mm -hmm. I, need to, I need to be able to create a framework and fill it up with content, no matter what that is. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think of as service design. But if you are the person, for instance, is already a dedicated um, policy maker, Yeah. And they, that's, what, that's the domain that they are the expert of and they just want to get better at it and like, yeah. improve that. I think it's fantastic. Not sure I would put them over to, I don't know, like uh, an IT company. Or, right. Uh, it's a very interesting discussion. And uh, I, I don't have a firm stance, but I can see the same thing happening. Maybe it's the word design that uh, gets in the way because a lot of people appropriates that word. Right. Uh, you know, like... Design ethnography, for example. Yeah. There are anthropologists with no design training that now call themselves design ethnographers, right? Yes. Okay. It has been really fashionable the last five years or so. I think this word is just fashionable. Exactly. You know, we should just put it on a Chanel. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Put it on like a sweater. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that to me, so now I'm leaning towards your, your viewpoint that that to me is diluting what design means. If you focus so much on the ethnographic approaches and methods and think that des the design part is only understanding people, yeah. then that's, well, that's just that's the first, that's, yeah. the, that, that, that's like the prerequisite for the actual design job. It's yeah. not the design itself. So when you say design ethnography, to me, that's a really weird, <laughs> that's a weird term. <laughs> yeah. To me, it, it feels like they put a lot of, put, they put the word design in front of a lot of these professions yeah. when they want to signal that it's servicing design, something like that. Right, right. You know, like, hey, I like to work for some kind of development. Yes. So not just creating a study per right. se. Yeah, At least that's what it's telling to me, but maybe that's not what it Yeah, yeah, and, and I totally agree. It becomes almost, because when you, if you do thought experiments and you're like, yeah, but isn't a lawyer a law designer then? <laughs> right it becomes it becomes yes. a little diluted like everything you create is you can claim that it's design because it is yeah, because it is in a sense right but yes. then if you have that wide of a definition then the word almost becomes meaningless and i know that for example jared spool uh great guy by the way i i think it's he's hilarious to listen to but sometimes i have a hard time understanding what his what he means when he said that everybody is a designer because on the one hand, yeah, sure, of course. If I, if I change the world in some way, I put a rock from here over here, yeah, sure, I've designed something. Yeah. 
but it gets like what do we need a word for them you know what i'm saying yeah and i also imagine that if you put a rock from here to there and then you call yourself a designer and someone hires you to do what they think design is yeah and you just do the same thing yeah so then what does that mean for designers then the next time around they look for yeah. first of all they have an experience that design is only putting rocks from left to right right and then that's it and then but but what if placing that rock is exactly what was needed what if that made the whole difference right yeah you, you don't have to be you don't have to make the most complex thing it's actually a skill to be able to do that minimal little thing that makes a big difference that's true right yes But it still distorts yeah, the image I know. of what yeah. design yeah. can do. Exactly. For yeah. the good and for the bad. And actually, I've experienced that too. Because what happens is that the next time around, you're invited to you know, look at a problem, which cannot be resolved by putting the rock from left to right. And then you propose a process. And then they look at you, but what? Yeah. Isn't it just putting the rock left yeah, to yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can do it in no time. Yeah. What's this month-long plan here? Yeah, yeah. It's expensive. We don't need it. Do your job. Yep, yep. Ta-da. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a, yeah. an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> you can hire it, actually, when you are here in the weekend. They can take you up on a glider. Oh, right. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Yeah, this, this was an amazing hike. Really glad I, I did that. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm glad you accepted the invite. But yeah, back to yeah. rocks. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think... Uh, the process has a value in itself too. Uh, and I know that I'm maybe contradicting something I said earlier, but in the long run, of course, the purpose of a process is to make sure that the quality can be high 24-7 because everyone can get a stroke of genius, you know, at one time. But if you're a professional designer and you're, you know, every week you're supposed to deliver quality, well, then you need process. Exactly. Right? But the and process it's... itself is not, A, a guarantee, and it's always just a stepping stone to provide good work. So you shouldn't be afraid to abandon the process now and then if you know in your gut that, well, this is the right thing to do. If you have that experience and that mandate, then you can actually skip process sometimes. Have you read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book called Blink? Yes. Yes. And, you know, he argues how if someone, a professional, has decades of experience, you can make a call in a blink of an eye. Exactly. Exactly. The correct call. But you need to have the dec decades of experience. Let's not skip yeah. that. Yeah. And, and you have to struggle through those processes a little bit in yeah. order to internalize it. Kind yeah. of like a cook would need a recipe book the first time, but then you <laughs> yes. won't need a recipe book maybe later. <laughs> It's also for documentation purposes, of course, going back to the recipe analogy, like even if you're a master chef and you can whip up amazing meals or dishes, it's beneficial if you can document it in a, in a way that others can benefit from as well. Uh, so, so the process also has that more of a library function. So, yes. so. And don't forget that as much as we love design and think of... <laughs> I'm not saying my own opinion here, but this is, I think, like a point of view on design that these artistic people, you know, they are always riding their bikes and their like funky shoes and like the <laughs> yeah. colorful socks and the beards if they are guys. I'm know, so or... boring, I feel like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there's this artistic view on what designers yeah. look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I think that also has, creates this link to art. But at the end, design is applied art. We apply all this knowledge to serve a purpose. Yeah. But it's not a self-serving exactly. thing. And yeah. for that reason, you need to make it, as you were saying, to, to, to pr predictable in a way, like the quality of it predictable as much as possible and yeah. create checks and balances for that as well. So Exactly. I, I totally agree. It's also fun to, to connect it to the third leg here, which is research in academia and science, because art is also a way to understand the world, oh, yeah. just like science is, but we use different tools. So I think both perspectives are really great, uh, but sometimes... I feel like society demands of us to choose that you're either an artist or a scientist. You can't really be both because then you're muddling the waters too much. <laughs> and I true. think, you know, why not be both? Um, yeah, you just broke that rule, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I wish, personally, I wish that universities would, would enable that in the future. Yeah, yeah. Do we want to have any other line of um, thoughts? You said we we're going to return to why ChatGPT is a UX product and not oh, a, right. an AI product. Yeah, how is ChatGPT a UX <laughs> no, product? No, it's it's one of those things that it's kind of like when I when I decided to title that article, AI will not take any jobs. It's like it's sort of like crystallizing a sort of semi-provocative statement. Yes. What I mean is that the technology behind ChatGPT, the GPT, which is a OpenAI's version of the large language model concept. That was already completed in like 2019 or something. So it's the, the, it was already accessible. And if you access GPT model via an API, it's, it's, you can just, it's just a text prediction. But the thing with ChatGPT is just the way it types out word for word and the chat model that you have a natural chat dialogue with an entity. That's what makes it amazing not the tech itself because that's just old and you can get it in millions of other ways so that's why i think the the and it speaks to the power of well-designed services like if they would just publish the paper which they did uh, the paper is called all you need is attention um, to, to explain this model they could have left it with that but now they build a chat-like product that works amazing and you have this Instead of like Google delivering a search page right away with everything there, you get this sense like someone is thinking and typing to you. Yes. Like typing it out. Yes. That attribute, I think, is responsible for a huge amount of the user experience of, of ChatGPT. So I would say ChatGPT is a UX product rather than a, an AI product because the tech is... It's been there for yeah. a long yeah. time, yes? Yeah, and a long time is three years in this case. Yeah. <laughs> but in this space, three years is a long time. <laughs> but I think that also just another example of how if you can go to the depth of what makes people comfortable or yeah. safe or desire something. I don't want to say desire something because that's a marketing thing. That's what makes you feel safe. Yeah. That can bring success to you. And I think... You know, one of the wonderful examples of that was, of course, Apple. Yeah, yeah. And how the graphic user interface was invented. Yeah. Designed. Oh, 
that okay so if you want another topic to to drop into this yeah just bring episode. the bombs on we don't have any legislation just drop the nuke i we are right now and i told the students yesterday this that you are so fortunate to be part of a paradigm shift in what it means to design interactive tech yeah like it's it's been 60 years since since such a shift happened and that's when we went from batch processing of punch cards to command-based interaction okay so the going to command prompts like we terminals in the 70s and 80s and then moving on to graphical user interfaces yeah that shift was also big but it's not as big as this i i think um because the the graphical user interface revolution with apple being one of them and and sun and uh, later microsoft uh with the wimp metaphor window icon menu pointer that is um that was a huge step but you're still doing command based interactions you have just translated the commands to you a know it's a, a touch and interaction and direct manipulation what we have now with ai powered agentive services and that's a term that chris nussel has um talked about now we have this like uh, nielsen calls it intention based command specification okay and that is when you outsource the how you do stuff to an agent you specify in general what needs to be done and then with a powerful ai assistant you can count on it to carry out the details of that instruction so instead of viewing users as task doers we start to view users as task managers right and that's a very big shift if you think about what that means when you design services now you're less concerned with hover states and you know icons and that kind of thing that will still be relevant but you now have this wealth of opportunity to design the meta conversation about how do you specify these intentions how do you make the agent if it runs into trouble and it needs to alert you what are good notification schemes for that conversation because typically when an agentive service works it's out of your attention and then when it runs into trouble or you m- 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 realize somehow that we need to course correct here you need to have designed these interactions and that means that you might be in the morning setting a task and then by lunch something goes wrong and you're at another place well that agent needs to be able to call you up yeah <laughs> right and that interaction is something you as a designer need to design now not just components on the screen yeah. so so I'm, i'm thinking interaction design will finally mean what it means <laughs> not screen design but actual interaction design right there are new frontiers for design yeah and a, and a significant one i mean we've had new frontiers here and there like yeah speech has been around and so on but now the paradigm is is huge. Yes, I'm just laughing because I remember when I was at the Mobile World Conference in 20 uh, maybe 15 or so mm-hmm. in Barcelona and the speech recognition technology I think it wasn't exactly in like a high state but right. it, it was spread pretty wide. Different products could still not make a good sense of what to do with it, right. but they were trying to integrate it. Yeah, right. For sure. We were in this booth, smart TV. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then the agent was super excited and told us, "Look, you can just tell the TV that you are at home." <laughs> and then, and then we were like, "Cool." 
I mean, <laughs> I am so excited. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah. we were laughing like, so basically they told us that there is another way to switch on the TV. <laughs> yeah. So that's, this is a big step from there. Yeah, for sure. But I, but I think in, in retrospect, we will look back on 2020, roughly, as the decade when we started to design AI-powered services in, in a different way than just sprinkling AI functionality on top of our regular tools. Okay. We will see more agentive services in the background doing things for on our behalf and designing those initiative shifts and the conversations over longer periods of time and ad adapting to personalized preferences and, and so on. That will be more in focus uh, because we screen usability that should be a hygiene factor, not like something that is extra. <laughs> yes, agreed. Do you have any good advice for our listeners if they don't want to get lost in this AI sea of uh, news? Yeah, be mindful um, because it's very easy to be seduced by the hype uh, surrounding it. I sometimes say that we can revitalize 90% of all businesses in almost any country, I guess, by using 10-year-old AI technology. We don't have to use the new generative stuff. Uh, we can use traditional machine learning. And it's amazing that I'm now saying traditional machine learning because <laughs> machine learning was used to be seen as the new AI, where classical symbolic AI was the classical one. But now regular machine learning is the classical one <laughs> and generative AI is the new shiny thing, right? So be mindful of that and, and uh, make sure that you understand where the impact will be and how it will be. And I also want to encourage you to maybe not think of AI as sort of an optional thing um, because most products, if not all, will be touched by AI in some sense. Yeah, so, so just dig in there and be explorative and, and uh, try to... Read good books about it. Do you have any recommendation <laughs> other than yours? <laughs> of course, yeah. yours is first on the list. Yeah. I like the book Prediction Machines, especially since the context that we are talking about here is more on the service design asp aspect, right? I think Prediction Machines, because it's written by economists, so it's, it, it speaks a little bit towards what is the value for an organization in general? What's yeah. the strategic... And also... They, uh, the same authors released a book more recently that I forget the name of now. It's The Power of Prediction Machines, maybe? Something like that. But it, what the, a twist. <laughs> no, it's, it's more innovative than that, I think. <laughs> the, <laughs> two. <laughs> prediction Machines 2. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah. So uh, the, I'll, I'll make sure to send the links to, okay. to the show notes. We always uh, put it in there. Yeah. So. Uh, and then... You know, if you listen to this show in a year, maybe these books will be Obsolete, replaced by yeah. new ones. But So with that in mind, I would say that the general tip is to continue to read stuff from other fields. Uh, as, as interdisciplinary designers, you need to be educated in a lot of other fields. And not only factual, like nonfiction stuff, you should read a lot of science fiction. Good science fiction can inspire you to think differently about the was, world we're building. I was going to ask, do you have any favorites? Yes, there there are so many. I I like, for example, I think Heinlein, the classical 
like old school science fiction books. He is the one who wrote Starship Troopers, by the way. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those books are really great because um, just like Blade Runner or that kind of immersive, it's trying to tell a story about how life works today, but also tries to envision what it would be with other kinds of technologies. And of course, Black Mirror, all the episodes there are like instruction manuals for what not to do. <laughs> yeah, all the happy future visions. Oh, yeah. Is there any like positive future <laughs> scenario as a science fiction in a form of science fiction? You know, it's not really compatible because science fiction, like most fiction, if it's supposed to be engaging, dramatic, it has to be some conflict somewhere. So dystopia is really close to uh, science fiction as a genre, right? And the science fiction genre actually started with... So now I'm listing another powerful woman of the 1800s, like Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein. <laughs> that's okay. the start of the science fiction as a genre, because that's the first time in li literature history where a non-human intelligent entity was created using science and not magic, right? So that's the birth okay. of yeah. So that's the birth of the whole genre, and of course that set the tone for the genre. It's a very threatening, like man should not play God and create these things. Like that's the dominating. That's yes. why the Matrix and Westworld and Terminator and Hal and uh, the robots in Alien they all which have is, that. Which is precisely what we do now. Yeah, in a sense, <laughs> but it also like uh, we we touched upon earlier in the conversation. Um, maybe those uh, creating that evil AI. Well, there is a, there is there might be a likelihood that that is true, but I don't think that's the right problem to worry about right now. AI can destroy us in other ways, <laughs> such as if we um, automate things and take away um, human agency from our society. That's going to be a catastrophe long before AI has a mind of its own and tries to eradicate us from its will, so to speak. And we we will continue to build systems that are more and more powerful because our species operate under the assumption that information is valuable. That has always been our thing. We invented language, we invent science, and information about the world is our main currency so to speak so with that power we are always as a species going to be interested in building more tech to be better at information processing right and so i think if you implement that in the wrong way it will have a lot of power because language and information operates our society it powers our society and if you have badly designed or AI services or systems that can actually put people in harm's way. No matter what the AI thinks or wants, we can still have malfunctions and disinformation and that kind of problems. If we don't have control over that, we can we can be uh, heading for a disaster as well. So I don't think it's the terminators we need to worry about, but badly designed information systems that affect us in our daily lives. Okay, so if I recap, let's say, the core of what we have talked about, then to avoid that, the path to that is education and collaboration and within education beyond your own domain. Just yeah. be informed. It's, yeah, and it's easy for, for the two of us who are we, are, we are 
adopting the service design mindset. But I think the pillars that we talked about, like co-create, uh, have a holistic sense, look at the backstage part of how society is run. I mean, though, 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 that's the recipe to, yes. to making sure that this is being done in a fair and just way. So, so um, that's why we need service designers to actually read up on and understand AI and don't think that that's the engineer's job because they are not schooled in that. <laughs> and legislation. Yeah, legislation is part of, part of it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we came right to the end of this conversation. Great. And thank you so much for coming and taking this long walk with us. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed it a lot. And thank you for listening to our conversation, you guys. Take the advice. Edu be educated. Look into service design. And remain optimistic for the yes, future. Definitely. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for walking with us today. Our special guest was Pontus Varnestal. This episode was produced by Aniko Feyes and Yuli Mata. Original music by White Hot from freebeats.io. If you felt inspired, if you have any reflections on the topics discussed in the podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please visit us on Instagram at Puddles.products and leave a comment or send us a DM. We would love to hear from you. Enjoy the rest of the day and we are looking forward to walk together the next time. Bye.